This morning, I want to start reading out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to talk about how God awakens nations. This will probably take uh, a few Sundays to go through. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1 through 5, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says that the last days will be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. Does it sound familiar? They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Then verse 5 is interesting in the New Living in particular. It says, they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And Paul admonishes, stay away from people like that. Now, remember, he's not just talking about the people in the world here who who are living in in this sordid lifestyle, but he talks about people who act godly. They have a pretense of godliness. And he's saying the reality is even though they profess, even though they say, their followers, they are contradicting. It says in Titus, they contradict um, their lifestyles. It actually says they deny God by their lifestyle is what it says in Titus. They profess him, Jesus is Lord, with their mouth, but their lifestyle denies him. Wow. We read that the last days will be characterized by terrible things. And we see that around the world, right? I mean, Time after time, week after week, we hear about terrorism, people being killed. Um, it's just gotten so much worse. It's just gone up to another level altogether. Um, the evil things that are happening, our Western nations have turned more and more away from our Judeo-Christian ethics and values and are embracing secularism, humanism, really ungodly stuff, stuff that the Bible says in Isaiah 5 that what will happen, and of course, it was true about Israel in, in the day of, of the prophet, but it's also true today that they'll call evil good and good evil. And that's exactly what's happening in our world right now. I mean, there, there are certain people that, uh, and certain values, if you say you embrace those values, you considered um, very intolerant, racist, whatever it may be. And the truth is that we're looking at, in many senses, Christian values. This is what the Word of God says, and we need to recognize that in these last days, you know, he said this was this would be the way. In fact, Paul said to Timothy that evil men will become worse and worse. That's what he said. They, he said they'll be deceived and they'll deceive others. So this is characteristic of the last days. But we also read in Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says... God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. When? In the last days. So your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days. In what days? In the last days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Now, clearly... Peter is speaking to a first century audience, right? That's one of the things that we need to make sure that when we read the Bible, we recognize Peter was preaching to people. 
He wasn't prophesying of a future day, saying, you know, this are the last days. But he was saying the last days was there and then in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost over 2,000 years ago. And he said that is the last day. So we're living in the last days, and we're 2,000 years later. I don't know if it's the last of the last days or how much longer we have here on earth. Who knows? When is Jesus coming back? Um, we can anticipate and accelerate the coming of the day of God, according to Second Peter 3.12. And not a lot of people preach this, but it says, what type of people should you be? And then the, the question is answered by Peter, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Some other translations say, looking for and hurrying along. Some say speeding up the coming of the day of God. How do we speed up the coming of the day of the Lord? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, as we preach the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations in the world, then the end will come, is what he said. And I believe that. So in other words, we've got a lot of Christians that are sitting in churches and of course, we realize now that even that has changed. I mean, it's, it's really different now. Christians, many places, thank God for those of you who are faithful, but many Christians today don't even have a conviction to come to church even once a week. We used to get people coming, right, several times a week, and now it's hard to even get believers to come once a week in our Western nations, in Australia, and, and other nations as well. Things have changed. But I don't think God has changed. I don't think his expectations of us has changed. But what has changed? We've changed. We've let down our guard. We've become complacent. We're not as devoted as we should be in many respects. I know there's exceptions to that. I thank God for those who are faithful. But we look at this and we realize that the call is to go way beyond just coming to church. I mean, we need to fellowship. That's very important. We need to be instructed. We need disciples. But there is a mandate on our lives as the people of God to bring the kingdom uh, of God throughout the world, wherever we live. It's really important. This is what we're called to do. We're called to be a people who uh, bring forth this gospel of the kingdom to the nations of the world. So God says in the last days, there'll be dark, there'll be difficult times. But then concurrently, the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Wow. So important, right? There's no contradiction here. The reality is we are living in a time of stark spiritual contrast. The darkness is getting darker on one hand, but then we're praying and believing, and, and it is true, and in certain places at least, that the light of God's glory is also intensifying. And so what do we need? We know very clearly Isaiah speaks about these to, you know, this, this tension, this bipolar tension, really it's two kingdoms that are in conflict with one another. The kingdom of darkness is vying for dominance on the earth, right? And the kingdom of God, God wants his kingdom to be, uh, also predominant, preeminent on the earth as well. So Isaiah 60, Verse 1 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But what's the answer? What's the remedy? What's the solution to this darkness? But the Lord will arise over you. Over whom? Over the church. And his glory will be seen upon you. So darkness is dispelled by light. 
So as we arise and we shine and we go out into the midst of a dark world, then this darkness will be dispelled. Our calling, like the Apostle Paul, is to turn people from darkness to light, from Satan to God. And I want to read in, in Acts chapter 26, 17 and 18. This is what the Lord Jesus says to Saul, later called Paul. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. What Paul, what is, what's Paul supposed to do? To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is the mandate of the church, right? Satan's cast his vote. God's cast his vote. But who has the deciding vote? We do, right? God's will isn't just automatically done, right? How will they hear? How will they believe unless someone goes? Unless someone is sent. Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 10. Things have to change in the world. God wants to, this earth. What does he say in, in Habakkuk chapter 2, 14? His will is that the earth would be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. An awareness or knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's God's will. Do you see any places in your neighborhood, in your community, in the lives of some people maybe that you even know that are dark, some dark areas? Do you see people that need delivered? Do you know people that need delivered from darkness so they can come into the light and they need to be set free from the dominion of Satan and come into the dominion of God? They need to come out of his kingdom, the devil's kingdom, and come into God's kingdom. His kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The devil is all about stealing, killing, and destroying, destruction. He comes to destroy. But we, as a church, have this responsibility as the people of God to bring transformation to the earth. What an amazing thing. The early Christians, particularly the apostles, they were noted as these are the men who've turned the whole world upside down. Now, in reality, they were turning things right side up, but it was their skewed perception of things, you know, because wherever they went, there was either revival or riot or both. They preached the gospel with such force, with such boldness, with such uncompromising, um, you know, authority that it upset people at times. Right? And there's no way around that. There's going to be people they get upset when we really stand for the truth of the gospel. Not everyone is going to believe. Not everyone is going to say, what an amazing message. I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Why? Because the enemies blinded them. Because they don't understand. I mean, it really makes no sense when you think about it. When you come with the gospel, the good news, as it's called, and you say to people, God loves you. He sent his son to die for you so you can walk in freedom and you can be delivered from all of this stuff and you can be whole. You can know who you are. You can have peace and joy and eternal life. And then they just growl at you. Like, get out of here. I mean, you tell me that's not demonic. There's guys, there's so many people that have been blinded by the powers of the enemy, by the power of the enemy. Satan has blinded them. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy, Satan has taken them captive to do his will. 
They, he's holding them hostage. And what do you do if somebody's a hostage and they're powerless to, to liberate themselves? What do you need to do? You need to send in those who are skilled and capable of extracting these uh, people from these hostage situations. And we are, in a sense, God's special forces. We are the ones that he has called to go in and set people free from the dominion of darkness, to liberate them. And they may not understand it, and they may not get it, but ultimately something will happen as we go with this message. So there's this tension. There's this sense in which people are are concerned about, you know, preaching the gospel today. I mean, I won't say much, but there's some a post that was recently stated by, a, you know, a football player uh, here in Australia, and and he made a comment about the whole LGBT, whatever it is, Q, whatever thing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that it was necessarily the wisest way to address that. But um, on the other hand, you know what? What has happened is so many Christians even are, are just, uh, and pastors are, are just rebuking him. And telling him he shouldn't have said that. Now, look, I know that can be a hobby horse, and I know that's not the only sin. And I recognize that. But we do have to preach the fact that there is there's sin in the world. And that those, Paul, Paul talked about it in Galatians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 6. He has a whole list of vices, not just that issue, but many other things. And he says, including heterosexual sexual immorality, like adultery and fornication and uncleanness, but he also includes homosexuality in that. And he says, those who practice these will not enter the kingdom. So, guys, when we look at the Scripture... When we recognize what the Bible says about this stuff, right? Some people say, well, that was a cultural issue there. You can come to our hermeneutics class on Thursday night, and we'll show you it wasn't a cultural issue. When you understand the principles of Scripture, this is universal and is applicable to us today. Likewise, adulterers, fornicators, right? None of them are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're not picking on those who have, you know, the same sex relationships here. We're saying anything that goes against God's standard, which is one man and one woman together for life, that's God's ideal. And, and may I say it? Look, it's happened with divorce. Look, it's happened with divorce. We just, Throw it around so we, we just treat it so lightly today. But read what Jesus said about divorce. Okay? I mean, don't get upset with me. Read what he said. What did he say about divorce? There's a place, and Malachi says God hates divorce, right? Now, I realize that, and, and I'll put that, you know, that disclaimer in there. There's people that can say I went through this and, and abuse and unfaithfulness. I understand all that. But the fact is that there are so many Christians today that are just so casual about this, what God calls a covenant. He has called it a covenant. And it's not easy to stay married, especially to me. But, and, and so, you know, the fact is, it isn't easy at times, but God has called us to be faithful. It's not easy to follow Jesus. How many, everybody figured that one out yet? Okay? It's not always easy to do the will of God. It's not always convenient 
to do what God wants us to do. But this is what needs to happen in the church. There needs to be a level of devotion and holiness that people step into, that we stand for the truth. We're not going to back down. We're not going to shrink back. We're going to stand for the truth of the gospel, and we are going to speak the truth in love. Not about like those people that are out there just condemning and and full of hatred and spewing all that stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying God loves you. You need to be saved. If you practice sin, you'll perish, right? Doesn't matter what sin it is. If you practice and you live in sin as a lifestyle. Guys, read Ephesians 5. He says, don't be deceived. Don't think like, I can, I can live this way and practice sin as a lifestyle because I'm a child of God. I'll get in. Like, you know, you'll get some free pass in the back door of heaven. God says, no, don't. You'll be, de- don't be deceived. Those who live this way, those who practice sin as a lifestyle will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's shocking. It's going to be a shocking day. For some people, when they stand before God and say, I have a perfect attendance record, I never miss church. And God says, I never knew you. For some people, I never knew you. I don't know. I never knew you intimately. I never knew you personally. You, 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 you know, were religious. We just read this. They act religious, but they deny this power that can change them. Wow. What a terrible thing. They will act religious, but they reject the power that can make them godly. It's not, do we speak in tongues? It's not, do we prophesy? It's not how many demons we've cast out or how many people we've prayed for and their legs grown out. What it is, guys, is how are we living? How are we walking? Are we living a righteous lifestyle? Are we godly? Are we Walking in holiness. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fifteen. right? And then Jesus said, but blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So there is a sense in which holiness is really a condition of the heart, purity of heart, right? What happens? And when we look at the Pharisees, remember? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and, and then right after that, Jesus talks about how you, um, they said, it, you know, it is written, you shall not commit adultery, but then Jesus says, but I say to you, right? You say, don't commit adultery, Pharisees, but I say to you, Pharisees, if you look at a person lustfully, you commit adultery in your heart. You say, you should not m- commit murder, but I say, If you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. What's easier, to abstain from the physical act of adultery or murder or to have a heart that is pure and a heart that is clean? So it's a very important thing. And I believe that the days in which we live in, it's so obvious that God is looking for people that will arise and shine. A people that will not just be you know, biblically literate. We certainly need that. But we also need, uh, and we need a people that, that have good morals. But more importantly, we need a people that know God and who are filled with his glory and his power. That's the most important thing. Arise and shine, right? Arise and shine. The glory, the presence, the anointing. Can you imagine being on the earth in Jesus' day. 
And there he is. Right? Jesus. His name, Christ, Christos, the anointed one, the one smeared, rubbed with oil. The anointing. How? They were reaching out, touching him, and being healed. The, just touching him and being healed. Luke 4.40 says, Every great multitudes came to him, and he put his hand on each one of them and healed them all. When it says great multitudes, guys, that means there were hundreds, if not thousands of people, and they were coming to Jesus, and he's touching them, and they're all being healed. Why? Because this thing called the anointing, this thing called, he says, I perceive that virtue or uh, power has flowed out of me. The Greek word dunamis has flowed out of me, right? I mean, look, he didn't even know. It says with the woman with the issue of blood that the multitudes were, the King James says, thronging him. The word literally means that there's so many people, it was like crushing him. I mean, you talk about, have you seen that on, on maybe on television where there's um, uh, cr- so much crowds that people get trampled upon? Well, this is basically what was happening in Jesus' day. This is what the Greek is saying, that they literally had the risk that Jesus and his disciples would have been crushed by, by the crowds that were pressing around him. And so this woman, in the midst of all of these multitudes surrounding Jesus, reaches out, and her rationale is, if I can only touch the hem of his garden garment, I'll be healed. And when she does that, what happens? Immediately, it says that the fountain of her infirmity is what the Greek says is dried up. She had this condition of internal bleeding, For many years, and as soon as she touched Jesus, the account says that basically, um, this, the, the fountain, the, the bleeding, it was like you turn a, a tap off, a faucet off. It stopped immediately by just reaching out. Now, again, great multitudes following Jesus, around Jesus, and Jesus says, who touched me? And, I think it's Peter. Peter says, what do you mean, who touched you? Jesus, there's like thousands of people surrounding you. What do you mean, who touched you? A lot of people have touched you. Then he says, no, I perceive virtue or power or dunamis has come out of me. This is a different touch. This isn't just a touch, like a physical contact. This is a touch of faith. There's something different that has happened here. And because it was rooted in faith and rooted in a sense that she knew that Jesus was the only solution to her problem, because of who Jesus was and what he carried and how full he was of the Spirit of God, there was a release of power. I'm saying that to say we need people today. If we're Christians, don't we need to be, in a sense, like Christ? Somebody says the word Christian means little Christ. I don't know, but it definitely carries the connotation that we're like Christ and that we are to do the works that he did, and we are also to be a people full of his presence and his anointing, and we're to go and help set the captives free. Isn't that an amazing truth? Isn't that something powerful? Because Jesus said in Matthew 10, 7 and 8, as you go, speaking to the twelve, I want you to preach the kingdom. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, and raise the dead. Freely you've received, freely give. 
Now, when he says freely you've received, freely give there in Matthew 10, verse 8, he's not meaning you guys didn't have to pay any tuition fee okay, for this. He's not saying that. He's saying liberally, generously, I've given to you. Okay, So I've commissioned you to go and do these things, but liberally and generously, I've given you the authority and the power to do it, right? Because he says that Jesus gave them both power and authority to do these things. What kind of God would commission us to do something but not give us the power and authority to do it? It's like Pharaoh telling the Israelite slaves, make bricks, but you can't have any straw. There's no difference. God's not like that. He gives us grace. He gives us power. He gives us authority to overcome, to overcome sin, to overcome sickness, to overcome Satan. And we have been called to rise and shine. We've been called to let our light so shine before men that they may give praise to our Father in heaven. Amen? Do you believe that? This is a story, and we'll go through it in the ensuing weeks here. It's found in 1 Kings 17 and 18. I've preached on this before, the story of Elijah and the dark days in which he lived, King um, Ahab, Jezebel. We're going to look at it because there's some very um, powerful parallels to our culture today with what's going on. And the truth is that Elijah was used by God to awaken an entire nation. Isn't that amazing? To see an entire nation that was blinded, steeped in darkness, had no sense of, um, you know, openness or, or sensitivity or awareness of God. I mean, they were going through the motions, they, they, but they were worshiping idols. They were living for themselves at the same time. But God raised up this prophet to turn this nation back to himself. And when you look at the process, the, the steps that were involved, I'll just quickly go through them, and then we'll break it down. We'll unpack it next week. The, the first step we see is isolation from God's presence. What happens is here they are in dark, evil days because they turned from the Lord. They were worshiping idols. They were living in moral lifestyles. And what ends up happening, of course, is Elijah comes and prophesies that there won't be any rain, there won't be any dew, and the sky sealed, the earth begins to dry up. There's a severe drought and a dire famine in the land. First Kings 8.35 says, When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain, because your people have sinned against you. In the Old Testament, often the, the whole idea of a drought was indicative that God was punishing them because of their sin. They sinned against him. So it speaks of God's presence, of his blessing, of his, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Favor, being with his people. Have you ever been in a place where it just seems like the favor of God's not with you? Have you ever been in a place where you know the favor of God has been with you? And God's opening doors, and, and he's just doing things. Well, what do you prefer? You know. But when we move into that place where we just, because there's something wrong in our lives, and you know, we, we just begin to feel almost dead inside. We just feel like we're drying up inside. What's happening to me? What's going on in my life, Father? 
And, you know, we've been talking about the importance of healing your soul because there are many Christians, many even in ministry, that are ministering, and what they're ministering out of is brokenness. They're ministering out of, out of toxicity and, and the water, so to speak. He said, out of your, your innermost being, out of your belly, the King James says, will flow rivers of living water, right? And we know that this water that is to be released from us is the water of the Spirit. It's to be pure and clean water. Do you believe that? So what happens is when God's presence is withdrawn, we invariably experience lack, lack of power, Lack of peace, lack of provision, lack of protection, and then ultimately lack of purpose. Lack of purpose. What's going on? What's my purpose? You know, even the scriptures, which before they were just so fresh, the revelation that came from the Father, it just begins to dry up. And you just kind of like, well, what's God saying? What's happening in my life? And we're at a place where we're just not sensitive to his voice anymore. And, you know, God said in Isaiah 59, he said, you know, he said, my arm's not too short that I can't help you. I can't heal you. I can't rescue. He said, my ears aren't deaf. He said, but your sins have made a separation between you and God. Yeah? And sin isn't just the bad things that we shouldn't do and we do. But it's also a lifestyle of cultivating his presence, his hunger and communing with him. It's, it's not only the sins of commission, but sins of omission, right? We get dry. We, we stop communing with the Lord. And those things eventually result in a withdrawal or, or a, a dwindling, a languishing of spiritual life. And I know that what that's like. I know what it's like to, you know, the Bible says, stir up the gift of God within you. It says in Leviticus 6 that the fire in the altar must never go out. Then he says, but the priest must bring the wood and stoke the fire every day. So that's our responsibility, to keep this fire going, right? Quench not the spirit. We did a series on this. And what does that mean? Don't put the fire out. So you can you can suffocate a fire very quickly. You can throw a wet blanket on a fire. You can use an extinguisher to put a fire out quickly, but the other way is not only suffocation, but starvation. What does that mean? You just neglect putting fuel on the fire. And the latter is a longer process, but eventually the same thing will happen. If you neglect stoking the fire and putting fuel on the fire, eventually what will happen is the fire will go out in our lives. And it's so important that we address this. And when we see what's happening, you know, the nation in Israel's time is in, in dire straits, and God sends Elijah to the brook Cherith. We've, we've talked about this. We've taught about that. But God was working in Elijah's life when he was in the brook Cherith. It wasn't just, you know, God's provision for his preservation, meaning he had water, he had bread, he had meat, but it was preparation for his promotion. God was preparing Elijah, who's a type of a remnant people of God, that will be prepared to demonstrate his glory and power. Later on, we know the story. The fire of God would fall. 
the nation would turn back to the Lord. How many believe that the fire of God needs to fall again today? Do you believe that? Or are you just happy going to church, happy with your life the way it is, when you look around and you see the world in such a mess? Even you don't have to look far sometimes, do we, to see people that are close to us, even family members, friends that are in a mess. I'm, I'm sick and tired and, and not at all content with not seeing the miracles of the New Testament. In recent times, I've just been really digging in and praying and, and saying, Lord, I don't want to be a person like you said to your disciples, you know, uh, or the man said to the disciples, I brought the boy to your disciples, but they were not able to heal him. I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person who, when I pray for people, they're healed, that miracles happen, that I'm in that place where I'm walking in my authority, and I know who God is, and I'm ministering life to those who are in darkness. I believe God is raising up a people in these last days, once again. We look back, say over the past 50 years, some of you have been around that long or longer, some of you have not. But if you look back, you see throughout history, there's been moves of God. And these moves have not been just in, you know, classical Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches. They've been in many different places. And when you see what God has done, and you see how he's been moving, and then you look back over the past few years, and I know, we look at things and we can say, was that God? Was that really God? That's very strange. <laughs> I get that. I understand that. But ultimately, what I'm talking about is an authentic move of God. And sometimes, guys, it's God, but people are strange, okay? Um, that's, you know, just because it's, it's people are strange and act strangely and it doesn't mean it's not God necessarily, but it's how people respond or react. So I believe we're in a time and a season where God wants once again to pour out his spirit. He wants once again to do something awesome. But what is the, the core issue, right? Is not so much where is the God of Elijah? Where are the Elijahs of God? 